When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. came back thank you so much this is your host kevin pollack welcome you back to my mrs mazel pod episode 33 part one yes as my favorite co-star caroline aaron and i break down the season finale of season three we went on a bit so i had to break it up into two episodes for the pod um and so as you've heard in the past there's going to be a little a bit of a, an abruptness to the ending of this here part one and oddness to the beginning of uh, part two because when we recorded, I was not thinking this would be a two-parter. That's where the awkwardness comes from and I appreciate your patience. You know what? Write to me at mymrsmazelpod at gmail.com and let me know what you think of these two-parters um, and their awkwardness <laughs> and clumsiness of edits by me. Yeah. Um, but I, I do love hearing from you, and I'm going to be reading one of your emails later in here the, at the end of this part one of episode 33. And then the actor who that email was written to recorded a reply, and I'll be playing that as well. All right, so for now, let's uh, settle in and please enjoy the reunion of Shirley and Moish for this here part one of our breakdown of season three. Episode 8. And now, ladies and Jews, please welcome back Ms. Multi-Award winning, straight from the stage last night. Where's the show? It's at a theater called The Actor's Temple on West 47th Street. The, and how long is the run? Well, it's supposed to be till January first, but it's quite, it's quite a hit, and so yeah, they want to extend for two months. But everybody's got now that this strike is over, everyone actually might get paying work. Yeah, in which case the theater becomes, you know, thrown by the wayside. Um, and you were so kind also to answer some listeners' fan mails. Love that. Yes, but um, now I should be. I should start asking questions in the fan mail section because yes. this has made me into a fan of the show. I'm not kidding. Uh, it's just a mind blower. You, we forget how good the show was, don't we? 
I completely forgot how good it was. <laughs> you said, please refresh and watch the season finale. And I, I, I it was jaw dropping. That's really all I can say. It do you was, remember? Do you remember how you helped me remember the pronunciation of your name? No. You mentioned the Kennedy. Oh yes, that's right. As in Kennedy or Princess, either one. Princess Not Caroline. Caroline. And you never forgot it. I'm so grateful. <laughs> well, I only knew Carolines. Right. But when I think about names, Caroline has a majestic sound to it. Exactly. It's, and you're from the South. You're the Southern Jew. Shalom, Southern name. Yeah. Caroline is a Southern name. <laughs> it's such a Southern name. Um, well, Caroline, thank you so much for, for joining back with the podcast here we're going to break down season three season finale and i wanted you so desperately for this because as you saw by re-watching this episode is jam packed there's so much going on there is so much going on it is so any one of the stories that are a part of this finale could have been their own series as far as i'm concerned they're just it is and yet it all knits together under the same theme that the show was made under, which has to do with um, women making their way in a world that at that time was not hospitable. And it's just amazing. Yes. Amazing. Yeah. Do you remember the table read for this episode? Because it was a season finale and those right. were those were a big deal. Really big deal. I don't remember what the theme of the food and the decorations were, because this is about so many things, this episode. It's about parents and children and lovers and husband and wives yeah. who are now divorced and show business and art and ambition and survival. It's so many things. It's well, just I know I used to take photos. Um, so I'd have to go back in my phone and, but I should, um, I should have in preparation for this because yeah, we've talked about the table reads on the show, but I don't know that we've gone to specifics of the production design and the giant photographs, recreations of various moments in time that were being represented in the script, which I think is what you're referring to. So I'm guessing um, maybe uh, tarmacs, airplanes. Yes. I bet it was uh, an airplane theme. I bet you're right. Yeah. It's yeah. a career that's going to take off. It should have been the Apollo, let's face right. it. Right. With the title of the episode alone, um, A Jewish Girl Walks Into the Apollo, written and directed by Amy Sherman Palladino. She would never have to do another thing in her life, as far as I'm concerned. And she should be on Mount Rushmore after this episode. I just could not get over it. And the fact that the episode starts with this young couple who are still oh. much in love and talking about starting a family and the big announcement that she's pregnant and their whole future yeah. looks like it's gonna unspool and immediately you jump cut, same scene, same people, same location, and they're negotiating. And I reached divorce. out, I reached out to Zegan. To, uh, to like any child. Yeah. He doesn't speak to his parents. Well, I said, um, 
I'm rewatching season three finale, which opens with those great scenes with you and Rach, and I cannot figure out how they did the transitions. Please, please record on your iPhone, whatever, and uh, light you can shed on the matter because uh, Caroline and I are breaking down that app tomorrow, and I'd love to include you talking about this. And he said, I can't uh, record Thursday or Friday. He was going to pre-record something on his phone. I can't do that because I'm doing reshoots on the Penguin show. Spoiler alert, he's on the Penguin show. Right. Um, with Colin Farrell, yeah, as uh, the Penguin. Uh, uh, I don't know how they did the shots either. We filmed both on the same day. And I got a makeover, haircut, et cetera, between setups. But listen, we've been around the block. I, I'm looking for transitions. The only false beat they didn't have a choice is that they kept the car in the background. But also they point out in the scene, only a couple of years has gone by. That's the other remarkable thing. That's right. There's so much more mature uh, and full of life and 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 kids. Kids. Yeah. But it's only been a couple. A years. It has yeah. to be five years, based on the four or five years, because she's right. talking about their son getting into collegiate, and that would be he would find out when he was four, start kindergarten when he was five. Yeah. So, four or five years later, the whole thing is blown up, and it's so interesting that um, you have a scene of two working parents, yeah. which is pretty much the modern world today. Mm. But two working parents. So, you know, our son's point of view is we need a neighborhood school. Yeah. We can't put this kid in a school. And the fact that that their their argument when we meet them in the present day is this kid has gotten into a very prestigious private school, which to this day is still a very prestigious private school in Manhattan. Extremely expensive. There's no fiction there. Wow. And your kid would have to be very bright. And, you know, that that dovetails into her later on in the episode going, well, if he has to be at a neighborhood school to make things work out for this family, then I'll just move to the neighborhood of the school. And what will that mean? I'll move back in to my old apartment and buy it from Moish. That is just such great writing, too. Uh, yeah, you're you're a wonderful writer. So you appreciate certain um, uh, sort of architecture. And I thought about what they wanted to establish in this opening scene from a writer's standpoint. And one of those, as you mentioned, that that point, that aspect, she's willing to move. But the other aspect to me was in the second half of these seamless transition of this couple, when they have children, it's also a way because everyone, I think, with great creative talent, hates exposition. They hate yeah. hearing it, seeing it, saying it. <clears throat> and so they want to also establish what her international tour is. Right, right. So dovetailed into that conversation about kids and where to, and where to ha- they're going to school which is played beautifully when they come to the button club and they're still arguing where the kids going to school um, is the fact that she's going on this tour and he take, let's see where you're going to be on the tour with anger. Oh, Zurich. You know, and he's going down the list of all these yeah. tour stops. Um, so again, exposition hidden beautifully within right. a, 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 a compelling and captivating scene. Yeah. And I have to say when I was rewatching it, I thought, wow, this is a big deal. This tour. 
it did all that. Exactly. You know what I mean? It was like, we knew she was going on tour, um, stuff like that. I don't, I mean, this is your world much more than mine, but the idea that this singer was going on a first class world tour to major cities of the world, this, you know, yes, who we met as a little housewife on the Upper West Side has right. now is now on her way to doing all of these things. And I thought it was. What a great genius way to show that innocent side of both of them. Yes. Right. Absolutely. And, and Absolutely. use, use the child and the child schooling as this delivery mechanism. Yes. Of all this information, but also to, to highlight from whence they came. That's right. And, and also that, yeah. the, the, you know, Amy said, to Rachel, who communicated it to me. The day before Joel broke up with you was the happiest day of your life. Wow. And wow. I, and I, you know, we forget that all of this series is plan B. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's like this entire series, these entire four years, everything we saw Mitch go through was plan B. And they introduce plan B for Marin's character, for the mom, yep. too, at the same time. What I love about our characters is we're plan A all the way. That's we right. We never get to plan B. <laughs> <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. Uh, but it was, yeah, really. And then in this episode, each character that we love, we get, we we get to spend time with them outside of their relationships with the main character. We see Susie, you know, um, lose at gambling and, and we see her cry. Oh. That was really impactful. A character that would never cry. I made a big note. She's of that. not crying over the money. <laughs> no. She's crying over the relationship. Has she, has she blown this relationship? Yeah. And then she goes to Joel to say, you love her, you will yeah. protect her, you will take care of her. You're yeah. the only one I can trust to do that. And she trusted me to do that. Right. I, and I failed. Well, before you jump too far ahead, after that opening scene, I, I love the button where they're discussing why the kids can't go to that other school. And she just says, because it's Queens. <laughs> it's Queens, I know. But also in that those two scenes, and I didn't even catch it the first time, the very last shot is him running back into the restaurant. Yes. Saying, I forgot to pay you. Yes. And then he says, I'm going to be a father. Yeah. So we know we've gone back yeah. to the original time period. Yeah. It's so fast. And you're right. The clothes are not so different. It's not such a different time period that you would immediately know that. And when that, with that one line, I realized she's created a circle. Yeah. It's just beautiful. And the next scene, of course, is Susie's apartment where uh, Jackie is reading the review of Miss Julie. And the, it's so <laughs> funny. And the metaphor of Susie trying to let birds go that yeah. won't fly away. How about that? They that? Just won't fly away. That was just so hilarious. And, and that she has trouble with the, oh, just opening the window. Yeah, exactly. And, and that these are, the, these are her two roommates. Yep. 
Well, yeah, that's the thing. That's... Chester walked through in a towel. I've recorded a couple of episodes now with Connor Ratliff. I just love him so much who plays oh, Chester. He's so brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this character was a, was a one-off in the Catskills. We weren't supposed right. to see Chester anymore. But he's so <laughs> addicting. Why would you not? <laughs> know. You know, he's just, and the fact that, you know, Susie is a very familiar kind of character outside of this there are people who collect strays. Yes. And collecting the strays. Yeah. You know, and, and it has an open door policy. In every other way, she shows so shut down as a character. We don't get to know anything about her personally. Yeah. She doesn't reveal. That's why it was so impactful when we saw her cry. Yeah. In but, fact, in this scene, it's a setup for how impactful because when Tess calls her sister, Tess calls right. with the news that their mom has died, does Susie cry then? No. She says, she says oh, Jesus, I thought this was a serious call. Right. <laughs> and she doesn't even share it with the two people who were there. You think nope. you'd yeah. hang up and go, you know, oh, that was bad news or what kind of news, Right. but nothing. And I'm like looking at these two guys, he's reading the review of her client and she's trying to let birds fly away. And Chester's walking through in a towel. Yeah. And they button that scene with saying, should we tell him there's no hot water here or a hot water heater? I loved that. I thought it was just hilarious. Stunning. And Brian Tarantino, of course. My goodness. Yes. There's never I mean, a moment he, where he's not. Yeah, you can cut this out if it's not correct. But I remember when Brian died <laughs> and um, Amy and Dan took over a very swanky restaurant in New York City to have a cocktail hour just in his memory. Yeah. And, you know, think of the hundreds of millions of actors that were on this show. Yeah. And the way they honored him. And so I asked them that night, I went, they they said everything they'd ever done, they put Brian in. Yeah. I can't remember where they said they met him first as an actor. Right. And, you know, with Amy and Dan at this point also, they're not big revealers of their personal lives, mm. much more of their professional lives. And all of a sudden, I saw Dan, fair, when he made a toast to Brian, very teary-eyed, very right. vulnerable. And he shared that with the cast and the crew. Yeah, it's just, It was thrilling to just have another layer of them to fall in love with. Yeah, yeah. There was a, a, an opening of their heart that we had not seen. Yes. No, agreed. not at all. Agreed. Agreed. Not at all. And I remember, you may not remember this, but there was a table reading. I don't remember which episode. And Brian started to improvise. Mm. Not much, but just to go off script a little bit. Uh-huh. And I remember Amy looking at him and saying, Could you just please read what's on the page? Oh wow. No idea they had a relationship or that they knew each other. But I remember, like, you know, like my heart thumping, going, Okay, take a note, read what's on the page. Uh-huh. <laughs> not improvise in this situation. You know, there are many situations that you and I've been in, you probably way more than me, where improv is considered an asset in terms yeah. of your skill set. Yes. Not in this case. And I went, they do not want that. Then to find out later on that they were so close to each other, because I felt so sorry for that actor. I was like, oh, he must be so humiliated. Yes. Yeah, I've mentioned a version of this in the podcast previous, but it's especially amazing when you are allowed to improvise in a movie, quite rare in a television show, but in a film, um, you know, there's there's writers who uh, are very precious with their words, 
And as longtime writers ourselves, man, can I appreciate that? Yeah. Because actors improvising with your words who aren't great at it, there's Oof. there's there's no colder death. No. And you know what's really funny? While we were filming Maisel, I was making this movie called Theater Camp. Right. Which Jamie loved. Improv. Not one thing written down. It was like being schizophrenic. I'd go to that set and they'd go, okay, you're going to read the campers a story. Just make right. it up. I right. do that. Then I get in a car and I go back and I think, don't miss a word, Caroline, don't miss a word because this is the no improv zone. Yeah. But if you're going to put yourself in someone's hands, yeah. I can't think of safer hands to be in than Amy and Dan's. True. In fact, I came to love the boundaries like a true child. Me too. Yeah. Isn't that funny? I found it very freeing after a while. Yeah. Like at first, like the first couple of episodes, I went, this is like acting jail. Yeah. You know? And yeah. then after a while, it was so liberating. Also, you were working for people who knew exactly what they wanted. And that is very freeing where yeah. you're not on it. Well, My easier kids. for you theater folks too. Yeah. Well, because we're used to having to be absolutely, you know, the rules in the theater are it is a contract violation to change one word of a play. One word. And, it, and I imagine it happens on occasion once the play is up and running, maybe somebody goes up on a line and they're trying to find their way oh, back. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And then the stage manager will come and, you know, knock you upside the head and say this, this, and this, because it's what you owe the writer. And, um, I think you were the rare exception, Kevin. I think when they cast this, at least I've heard Cindy Tolan even talking about this on your podcast, that they wanted theater actors. Yeah. Because they knew that we were used to this obligation. Yes. Uh, the words are absolutely sacrosanct. And yeah. that is where you launch yourself from. Yeah. Yeah. So from there, we're off to the Button Club, um, which is coming together. Mrs. Moskowitz at the bar running yes, running the uh, bartenders through their paces. Right. It's all hands on deck. She's barking out the orders. Archie's moving some cases of hooch. Right. Joel seems a little lost in thought. Uh, then I love when Archie is avoiding the waitresses. I'm married. You know, I know. Guys. Exactly. He doesn't want to do anything wrong. Joel Johnstone. to win back his wife. Yeah. You know, Joel and when you think about the themes of this, yeah, You have Joel, we've just seen him in his divorce scene. Mm. Now we see him trying to move forward into his new future. And we see Archie trying so hard not to be another divorce guy. Yeah. And I also love how Amy and Dan, as the season finale that this episode is, made a point of bringing back the characters of Archie and Imogene. And yes. have, have them have their own worlds within this world. Oh. Imagine uh, that they, writing task. And also that they are facing the same problems that Joel and Midge had and just approaching in a different way. But when we're at the button club and Joel goes downstairs, uh. talk about exposition, talk about hiding exposition. I First, when he went down and said, have you seen her? And then he was so open and said everything he wanted to say, but it also caught us up. Yes. Opening this club. It's going to be great. I don't know where she is. She hasn't returned my calls. Well, she's my girlfriend. Well, she may not be my girlfriend. Right. Like a message to her. We found out so much information. And beautifully written and beautifully performed. So uh, great. He was so great. And you also felt 
I don't know if this is because I was reading into the future. I just felt like a little bit of danger when Joel was down there. You know, it felt a little menacing. And then he just melts you. And he he doesn't even seem to take that in. The fact that, you know, he, he this is, um they yeah. have to be coexist. You know, they have to coexist. These two very different cultures yeah. in this yes. building. And they've established that in a couple of episodes um, from the very first time they're looking at the joint and they play that similar beat where he comes down, he's made a mistake. Yeah. Everything freezes in the gambling speakeasy. And the moment he leaves that Amy and Dan make a point of showing the speakeasy instantly fold right back into the where right. energy and volume and noise. But this time after he does his overshare, including really stress yes. that I thing, I think she'll like that. Right. When they go, when he goes back upstairs, Amy holds on the gamblers and makes them yes. contemplate what this kid just said before they do the instant back to noise and yes. confidence. Yeah. Really love that. Follow him. Yeah. She didn't follow Joel. She followed them, which right. was so interesting. And you knew in such an economical way that we don't know where this relationship's going, but we know it's got big obstacles within it. Yes. Cultural obstacles. Yes. That, you know, they're going to have to really leap over in order to make this work. And all of that happened in what, 120 seconds? Right. You know what I mean? Just in his little flight downstairs yep and then what happens right after does the club open right then or not then is it later well, next we're off to the Maisel home where zelda's in a hurry to serve as ave and rose are frantic to eat and then moish enters to ruins everyone's night right uh he finally gets up and and, and you know the whole thing about my father and his pickle cart Right. Um, right. Those were tricky words to say, but once again, our Tony Shalhoub and the energy that Abe has in that scene and just dolloping on. The, yeah, he can't eat enough to get rid of you. The you goulash, I mean? yes. It's like, what could he possibly do? Where's his magic <laughs> wand to make you go away? He makes and the biggest plate of food that's ever been made. Yeah. So hilarious. But also, you know, you're speaking in metaphors for the right. first time. Right. You know, which was I found really interesting is, and you're sort of looking at them like you either get it or you don't. You know, yes. You're not yes. Staying there to you're not staying there to unravel it. You're just nope. like you get it or you don't. And it's it's very but, clear, yeah, whose kingdom this is. Yeah, and and the reveling in being a thorn in Abe's side. Let's not yeah, forget that. That was fun for you. I remember <laughs> that you really enjoyed that. Yes, <laughs> it drives Abe to this master plan that he shares with Rose. He's going to tutor idiots. The city's teeming with them. <laughs> right, exactly. Just drop a rock, you'll hit one. <laughs> Oh, it's such great writing and such great performing. And then we are back to the button club. Uh, the joint is jumping. The band is jamming. Joel is kissing on May like he means it. Right. So beautiful. Um, yes. Yeah, I loved it that Mrs. Moskowitz yes. would not let somebody in. Yeah. But they're trying to shortchange the club. That's right. <laughs> it was so great. That just little moment. Nope. Another quarter, please. 
you know, and I yeah, think yeah. people are thinking this club, it's in Chinatown, we'll just kind of grease our way in, who cares? And you can see that it's a it's a really big thing. This Steph club. Stephanie has made just absolutely crushing every moment. The camera right. just eats up her beautiful face with a spoon and it's just and also that the the dialogue is they are oppositional. Yep. And they're kissing. Yes. Which is one of my favorite things that they do on this show. Yeah. That's why it's always surprising. It's never linear in the way that a lot of TV is guilty of. She is sort of like, you know, like not giving him a thing, nope. smart. And then they're they're kissing and Rachel walks in. And then Med Jenners. And I Mid love that 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 the character of Joel thinks it's time for May to meet Midge. Right. Just a great little moment of how stupid men are without yes. putting a finer point on it. Right. This exactly. will go well. And this then will this, go really well. Yeah. And then he walks away from them. Right. He doesn't even help them out in that moment. But then yes. also May gets to have that moment of after Joel says, this is my wife. She gets, you know, the writing is just so terrific. And where she says, you were married? I know exactly. And Midge doesn't know whether he's told her. So her reaction is, You didn't tell her? Nice going. Yeah. Exactly. And then, exactly. as you say, yes, Joel is uh, not just dumb enough to introduce them, but dumb enough to walk away and leave them there. Right. And not help them navigate that moment. And it is, you know, for the show where everybody talks about how fast we talk, yep. that's one of the longest pauses. Yes. In the show between those two women as soon as he walks away. Well, you know, we're not allowed to pause. So right. Yeah. But that was a very well earned pause. And I was like, what's going on? Yes. And also when they are left together, there is a sizing each other up that ends with the most competitive exchange where May says, I'm gonna be a doctor. Right. And Midge you know stands tall and says i'm gonna play the apollo i know it's so great it's so exciting and may for, has no reply right and they seem very and you know what else is really great in that button club scene is i don't remember how many scenes ago it was but when joel goes downstairs mm -hmm. he says to his compatriots i'm just gonna go down and make sure that a fuse doesn't blow or something tonight and there it goes. And there it goes. And Foreshadowing. Then I didn't even remember it until it started happening. And then I went, oh, right. And we know once he gets down there, he never mentions it. So nope. they have no intention of checking on it. Nope. He wants to find her. That's why he's going down. Yeah. But he doesn't want to tell the people upstairs. So he just kind of uses that as an excuse. And maybe he should have checked it yeah. on that first trip downstairs. Because there it goes. It goes out. The band has to go on a break. Mid seizes the opportunity. And thankfully, the microphone comes back to life when she takes the stage. I know, um, and it's sort of a theme yep. throughout the whole series is that they it went, they bail each other out over and over again. And that's so true. And then she uses the stage time as he stands to the side of it to finally win the argument where the kids are attending school. That's right. Exactly. By improvising hilarious material with it. That's right. And he doesn't get to say anything about it. Right. Yeah. right he's just trapped yeah. but she still does him a solid now this next scene i don't know if you picked up on it and i went back and watched the original 
This next scene uh, is exterior. It opens on an exterior of Maisel and Roth as Midge is approaching. Oh yes, mm-hmm. it is an exact replica of season one, episode two, when the Joel character goes to see his father at Maisel and Roth for the very first time in the series. It's the same street. It's the same taxi. It's the same song. Taint what you do by Jimmy Lunsford. It truly, they both weave through dresses. I mean, it is. And, and, and why? Because they care that much and want to show this um, sort of full circle element but also this little this little bonbon, this little gift to the fans who are paying attention. Yes, you know. Wow. Gorgeous. And had you talked? Had you talked on any of the episodes about Maisel and Roth? And that that from my point of view, the very first time I walked in there, there are so many things on the sets that the audience does not see that we see. Yeah. Every thread. Yeah. Every pattern. Right. You know, and because these scenes are so short, you're getting a sweep yeah. where we're spending the whole day there. And every time I turn a corner, there was not everything was period. Everything. Yes. It was yeah. so brilliantly done inside your office. The adding machine, the telephones, yes. the coat rack, everywhere you look, everywhere you look, every detail is part of the the in the story. And out everything. on that floor of an existing business that's been making that's right. suits for since the twenties, I think. I'll tell um, you something I noticed in that scene. Please. Which I loved as she's walking through looking for you. Yeah. She finds a dress yep. that she likes and she just hangs it up on a rack. <laughs> yeah. And she still has family privileges. Yeah. Do and when she need- goes, yeah. When she finally goes in the office, he says, you need a dress. She says, always need a dress, but that's not why I'm here. She doesn't even mention that I've got one on the rack already. I got one there. And you know, she's just going to walk out with it. Yep. There's something so lovely about that, which is, yep. you know, they're lifers, whether mm-hmm. the kids are together or not, this is going to be a place where she has full reign yep. to uh-huh. come into the business. And yeah. And the other that. big difference because they they sort of follow the same interior movements, including her opening the doors to the sewing room, um, uh, as they did in episode two of season one with Joel. The big difference is they well, they similarity they both say hello to Manny, of course. Um, the big difference being she's shopping, you know, right. as, you, as you pointed out. <laughs> Manny, I want to mention, uh, was wonderfully played by Teddy Kaluka, um, who got to do several episodes and um, and became, you know, a, a part of that set, became a part of that storyline. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and beautiful. I think you can still go there today. It's yes. the last one um, of these, you know, men's couture houses yeah. where you can have a soup cut and they're all gone. There used to be the guy who owned it said there were hundreds of them, of hundreds. Course. Yeah. And this is the last one standing. The other thing I made a note of is when Midge, before she does open those two doors, she's walking down a little hallway that's between the stairs and those two doors to enter the sewing room, as I'm calling it. Um, she's she's sort of mumbling to herself, but our music bed um, is still playing so that we don't hear her. 
But upon this second viewing, it becomes clear to me she's rehearsing what she's going to be saying to Mush. Right. Right. And 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 I did not catch that before. Um, but it's kind of fantastic. And and again, it speaks to Amy and Dan. They want the audience to be a participant, not just a voyeur. Right. If you're here to just look at the pretty things, turn the turn the channel. And also the fact that when she has that conversation with you and you want to know how she possibly going to pull this off, yeah. you say yes or no, you're so doubtful that she's in any position to do this. Yes. Um, and when she's talking about uh, that she's going to use this collateral, her contract, right. as comic, and that she has saved money. By the end of the show, we know the contract is not such good collateral. And we know her saved money has not been saved for her. Not saved so terribly. We are, ahead. Yeah. we are ahead of her. But it's so true that Amy and Dan just raised the stakes in this scene that, you know, as you pointed out, she's she's got to move to be near the school, but really she wants to come back home to that right. apartment and own it. And, own and, it. and I will say selfishly as an actor, you know, you and I and everyone who worked on the show were always asked um, if if given the opportunity of a fan to go this far into the conversation. Do you have a favorite scene? And it's impossible to answer because you have several favorite scenes. Um, our our scenes when uh, um, this is jumping ahead, of course, when we when you come to the door after we've broken up and the getting back together you've got the booties and i pull the beds spread aside and you, i mean there's all these moments that you and i have had on the show that will always be my favorite i had as i'm sure you probably too had very few scenes where it was just me and rachel i never had one yeah this is the, this oh, is yes, the only I did one in the bathroom you yeah. absolutely did yeah this yeah, is the you... only one that i had and you know for you and i those were exceptionally special yes absolutely moments um absolutely yeah yeah and, and, and I, the way you treated her in that scene was so moish but also so generous yeah that's the in the writing you know the only contribution i made as an actor because the writing really is that moment when he says I, he apologizes on behalf of his son the way he did oh. you dirty. Yeah. So it's all in the writing. The only contribution I made was, and it's hopefully subtle, the pushing and exaggeration in the way Moish speaks pretty much evaporates. Yeah. It is a centered, down-to-earth Moish. Oh, yeah. Without the caricature. Yeah, there's none. There's none whatsoever. And I got a sense from you, I don't know if you was, you were impressed by this girl. So impressed. You're going to give her a chance. You know, if it had been just anybody else, maybe not. Yep, definitely not. it seemed not. like you were going to give her a shot. Yeah. And you're the, of the four parents, I think you're the one that doesn't uh, dream of them getting back together. There's different times when the other three of us, yeah. you know, Shirley and Abe and Rose, all are 
in pursuit of their reunion. But you don't ever seem to go through that. You seem to get it. To your point, Amy, who wrote this episode, in this scene, gives Moish the words when when Midge is talking, or as Moish calls her Miriam, when Miriam is talking about wanting the apartment. And it's sort of baffling to Moish. And he says, are you getting back together? He's not right. saying it, hopefully. That's right. To That's your where point. I got that from. Yeah. It was like, this would be surprising yeah. to you. It's for me and my family, my children. And, and then it becomes clear. And to get Abe and Rose out of your house. Right. <laughs> That's when he becomes interested. Because Absolutely. As much as Abe and Rose have had it with this setup, it becomes clear. So has Shirley and Marsh. Yes, absolutely. Okay, yes. As I mentioned a while ago, uh, it's awkward. It's clumsy. It's a bad break in the conversation. Why? We were just, uh, why would you? Well, because I had to break it in half, and that was... Trust me, I listened to it over and over and over again. That was weirdly the best spot to bust it up into halves. So thank you for bearing with me. Write to me at mymrsmazelpod at gmail.com and let me know how unhappy you are with the whole business of me breaking up these episodes into two. But part two is exceptional, I promise you, as we continue to break down the season finale of season three. But um, yeah, Caroline Aaron, I mean, you know, come on. I want to hear some love for Caroline Aaron and some follow-up questions. Write to me again, my Mrs. Mazelpot at gmail.com. Uh, she's been great to answer a couple of emails in the past, and she will continue to do so. So comments, questions, suggestions, write to me. Let me know. And now, let's open up that uh, damn mailbag, shall we? I think we shall. All righty. The question is for Eric Palladino. Um, who joined me recently uh, with John um, to discuss, uh, well, they were a two-parter as well. Yeah. All right. So a question came in for Eric, who's so wonderful on the show, and I love talking with him and John. Please listen to that if you haven't. Uh, the question is uh, from Phil, who wrote, Hi, Kevin, I was listening to your episode with Eric Palladino. I was just talking about he made a reference to the uh, Yonkers waterfront. I knew he was born in Yonkers and wanted to ask what schools and teachers influenced him to pursue a career in show business. Please keep these podcasts going. They fill the void left since Maisel ended. Phil. All right. Well, Phil, as promised and threatened, here is your answer from Mr. Eric Palladino. Hi, Phil, Eric Palladino. I hear you have some questions via Kevin, one of which is what inspired me in Yonkers to become an actor or was there a teacher or a school that inspired me? And it really wasn't Yonkers per se, but it was watching Saturday Night Live with John Belushi and Robert De Niro and Raging Bull that made me think this was something I wanted to do. Certainly once I saw De Niro and Raging Bull, I said, this is what I wanted to do. And I was bothering my mom, who was a Yonkers school teacher uh, in the public schools, uh, consistently asking her to help me find a way to pursue it at 11 years old, 12 years old, or 
And then around 13, she found an acting school called Children's Repertory Company. It wasn't a school. It was just these two teachers that decided to get together and start teaching middle-income, lower-middle-income kids um, uh, about, uh, you know, what it's like to be an actor and teaching classes. And they rented out a space in a church in New Rochelle, the Trinity Trinity uh, Church in New Rochelle. And on Saturdays, they had classes. They eventually started having classes on Tuesday nights. But for three, four years of my life in high school, I would go there every Saturday from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. and study scene work and do improv. Beverly was the scene study teacher and Bill Green was the improv teacher. And they were both really... uh, well uh, versed in in teaching and in acting and they happen to be incredible teachers and I just got ridiculously lucky with both of them and Beverly died around that time because she had cirrhosis of the liver uh, around around when I was like 21 I heard that she had died and you know I think she was probably drinking <laughs> she was probably you know buzzed half the time she had a little thermos with her and Years later, I found out that there was vodka probably in that thermos. Um, but Bill Green, I for years in the, the 90s and mid-2000s when my career started going, well, I always wanted to talk to him and, and tell him, you know, how, what a big influence he was in my life. And so around when social media happened, I would check to see if I could find him. And this is the interesting part of this story. I, I never found him. But then when I was working on Maisel, Kevin, I one day was in a wardrobe fitting and Amanda, Donna's assistant uh, in wardrobe, uh, our costume designer, incredible costume designer, uh, one of the best that's ever lived. Uh, Amanda, her assistant, says to me, you know, my boyfriend says he knows you, uh, that his dad taught you acting as a child in in New York. And I said, what's your boyfriend's name? She said, Brandon. I said, what's his dad's name? I said, Bill Green. And it was like a knife, a beautiful knife in my side. I I said, oh my God, that's amazing. I'd been looking for him for years. Uh, You know, how's he doing? And and she said, oh, he, he, he passed away a few years ago. And I started crying right there in, in the wardrobe fitting, uh, you know. And, and I said, can I, can I speak to his son? Can I speak to Brandon, your boyfriend? And she said, yeah. And she FaceTimed him. And he looked exactly like Bill Green. I mean, spitting image. Uh, and and we, uh, we chatted and we wound up inevitably getting together. And now we're friends to this day. And these last few years, we see each other from time to time. He's actually going to be in Los Angeles next week, coming over to Sunday dinner, Kevin. And he, he's just a great guy. And what, a, what an incredible full circle moment it was for me. And uh, so that's, that's my answer. Um, I hope that was helpful. <laughs> Take care. Happy New Year. Well, that's exceptional uh, of Eric to share all of that. And um, Phil, I hope you got as much out of that as I did. Um, Pretty damn beautiful. And um, I'm going to meet the fella at the uh, the Sunday uh, Italian feast at Eric's 
that he mentioned in answering your, your uh, yeah, I don't know if you could tell uh, that he was referencing me or a nod to me, but uh, Jamie and I will be at that very meal, and I will report back. But thank you, Phil, for your question, and thank you, Eric, for your extraordinary answer. All right. Uh, next episode is part two of my convo with Caroline Aaron, and um, she and I will continue discussing the season finale of season three. Thank you all very much. Please continue to write to me, mymrsmazelpot at gmail.com. I love that you've uh, joined me for this journey and my, uh, my uh, friends and, and family who worked on the show. So until next episode, well, you know how this goes. Be kind to each other. And until then, I'll see you in my dreams. Okay, closing credits time. My Mrs. Maisel pod was created by me, your host, Kevin Pollack, research writer, producer, Jamie Fox, and our engineer, recording, post-production producer genius is Ken Plume. My Mrs. Maisel pod is brought to you by the fine folks at Q-Code. Q-code. Sounds like something, doesn't it? Oh, lastly, you should know, I'm told by legal to make this crystal clear, that my Mrs. Maisel pod was not sanctioned in any way, shape, or form by Amazon Prime, nor the show's creators Amy Sherman Palladino and Dan Palladino, although I feel the need to mention I did get their blessing. Okay, good. That should save me some legal.
In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch, involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati, and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. Welcome to a journey into the heart of the Texas Renaissance Festival, the nation's largest and rowdiest celebration of medieval fantasy. But what lurks beneath the facade of tights and turkey legs? Well, we dove deep into the empire to uncover a history marred by mystery and misconduct murders, assaults, and other crimes that tarnish its legacy. This isn't just a fairy tale, it's a cautionary tale of power, fantasy, and the consequences that follow when they all collide. Search for Crime Waves Renaissance Texas on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now. Everyone needs a break from the real world. That's why we played games as kids, and that's why we should play games as adults. I'm Troy Lavalle, And I'm Joe O'Brien. And back in 2015, we started a podcast called The Glass Cannon Podcast, a show made up of comedians and actors playing a fantasy role-playing game. And now is the perfect time to start listening because we just started a brand new story. It's basically Lord of the Rings meets Game of Thrones meets X-Files. Search for The Glass Cannon Podcast on your podcast app of choice. Hey, life is hard, so come play pretend with us. 